Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, John, it is your turn. Tell us what you picked. I picked a story called A Perfect Day for Banana Fish by J.D. Salinger. All righty. A weird one for sure. Do you have a section that you want to read? I do. See more glass, said Sybil Carpenter, who was staying at the hotel with her mother. Did you see more glass? Pussycat, stop saying that. It's driving mommy absolutely crazy. Hold still, please. Mrs. Carpenter was putting suntan oil on Sybil's shoulders, spreading it down over the delicate wing-like blades of her back. Sybil was sitting insecurely on a huge inflated beach ball facing the ocean. She was wearing a canary yellow two-piece bathing suit, one piece of which she would not actually be needing for another nine or ten years. It was really just an ordinary silk handkerchief. You could see when you got up close, said the woman in the beach chair beside Mrs. Carpenter's. I wish I knew how she tied it. It was really darling. It sounds darling, Mrs. Carpenter agreed. Sybil, hold still, pussy. Did you see more glass? said Sybil. Mrs. Carpenter sighed. All right, she said. She replaced the cap on the suntan oil bottle. Now run and play, pussy. Mommy's going up to the hotel and have a martini with Mrs. Hubble. I'll bring you the olive. Set loose, Sybil immediately ran down to the flat part of the beach and began to walk in the direction of Fisherman's Pavilion. Stopping only to sink a foot in a soggy, collapsed castle, she was soon out of the area reserved for guests of the hotel. She walked for about a quarter of a mile and then suddenly broke into an oblique run up the soft part of the beach. She stopped short when she reached the place where a young man was lying on his back. Are you getting in the water, Seymour Glass? She said. The young man started, his right hand going to the lapels of his terry cloth robe. He turned over on his stomach, letting a sausage towel fall away from his eyes and squinted up at Sybil. Hey, hello, Sybil. Are you going in the water? I was waiting for you, said the young man. What's new? What? said Sybil. What's new? What's on the program? My daddy's coming tomorrow on an airplane, Sybil said, kicking sand. Not in my face, baby, the young man said, putting his hand on Sybil's ankle. Well, it's about time he got here, your daddy. I've been expecting him hourly. Hourly. Where's the lady, Sybil said. The lady? The young man brushed some sand out of his thin hair. That's hard to say, Sybil. She may be in any one of a thousand places. At the hairdressers, having her hair dyed mink or making dolls for poor children in her room. Lying prone now, he made two fists, set one on top of the other, and rested his chin on the top one. Ask me something else, Sybil, he said. That's a fine bathing suit you have on. If there's one thing I like, it's a blue bathing suit. Sybil stared at him, then looked down at her protruding stomach. This is a yellow, she said. This is a yellow. It is? Come a little closer. Sybil took a step forward. You're absolutely right. What a fool I am. Man, this story gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> Go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit more about why you picked it. Well, I picked it because I was, I have a couple of Salinger's short story books and I was like, gosh, we should do a Salinger story because it's famous for short stories. So I picked one of the uh, the most famous of his stories and maybe one of his better ones, or I should say maybe one of his best ones. And yeah, that's it. <laughs> Nothing more complicated than that. Yeah, sure. Well, what do you like about it? Hmm, what do I like about it? I like that it was short. <laughs> it is really short. And it's got like those two sections. So it starts with Seymour Glass's wife on the phone with her mom. And then the part that you started is like kind of the second act. 
Yeah. So, I mean, both sections are pretty short too. Yeah. I think I like it because it, it just, it, it's not complicated. It's like a very simple presentation. It just says, here's what happened. Here's what people said. And then little details here and there. And, and that's it. There's nothing, right. uh, yeah, I think we have a better word. There's nothing more complicated about it than that. I mean, as far as the way it's presented, I feel like it was a complicated yes. story to understand. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's what I mean. It, like the, the presentation is just simple, mm-hmm. but then it's mm-hmm. got this depth to it. It's the kind of story you have to be like, you have to reflect on and think about, wait a minute, what happened? (laughs) Why did he do that at the end? Yeah, I had to Google it. And I know that you and I were talking about this a couple of days ago, but tried to avoid getting into the full discussion. And uh, (laughs) Save it for the podcast. Yeah, like I was uh, so thrown by this story on so many levels that I had to do all the cheating and reading and figure out what was intended by it. So I certainly had to cheat. (laughs) When you talk about reflecting, I reflected for about 30 seconds before I Googled because I felt like it was like totally whipped past me. And then you find out that Salinger, I guess, wanted to be in the New Yorker for the longest time. This was the first one of his that they like picked up and it demanded like a major rewrite. So I'm dying to know what the original was like because the editors had a similar complaint. They're like, this is really obscure. People are not going to understand it. They made him do a massive rewrite. And then um, he was like a, a major hit with them ever since. And uh, like I said, I had to cheat and read like all of the indications, but the story was like so familiar in the way that it was told. It felt a lot like the girl, all the, what is it? All the girls in their summer dresses. Oh, yeah. It feels like the same era almost. I'm sure it is. Like the way these people talk to each other and the section that you read, like Sybil's mom refers to her daughter affectionately as pussy, which is like nothing we would hear these days. Pussy cat. Yeah. And then she's like, I'm going to give you the olive out of my martini. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It feels like of a certain time, you know, when parents rubbed alcohol on their kids' gums, shit like that. Yeah. So it felt like it was from like a certain era, which I liked. And there seems like there could be also within that time period, a style that people like to mimic. So you're talking about like the presentation being kind of straightforward, but I feel like I recognize even the presentation, you know, of just two people like conversing. And then in the girls in their summer dresses, they're literally walking around town and he's looking at women, but there seems to be a similar presentation in terms of you really needing to pay attention to the dialogue, which is extremely natural. They're not always discussing like what's they're discussing what's pertinent to the story but they're not always discussing it in a way that's like straightforward and you do have to like really pay attention it's almost as if it's like you're eavesdropping on these characters because the dialogue is like so authentic but like on second and third read you realize he's very deftly incorporating everything you need to know about what's actually taking place it's just you read it and took it in so quickly that you maybe missed it at first well i think one of the keys to this is it's it's told in third person, but it's not third person where we get to know the thoughts of the characters. It's like a, a, yeah. a psychic remove to it. Right. We get nothing of their interior, mind interior lives. It's all actions. It's all what they say is the closest we get to kind of thought processes. Yeah. Even like the second paragraph starts, she was a girl talking about the, it starts off just, there's a girl, it's called the girl in 507 who answers the phone. And so it says she was a girl who for a ringing phone dropped exactly nothing. You know, that is uh, the narrator's description of her. That has nothing to do with how she sees herself. 
what she yeah. thinks about herself. It's kind of like a, a way to describe her from the outside. And even the next, the next sentence is she looked as if her phone had been ringing continually ever since she had reached puberty. I love it looked that as if, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great description, but it's wholly external. You know, she right. looked as if this, we're not getting like her own experience. Like, you know, a first person narrator would say my phone had never stopped ringing since I reached puberty. You know, it'd be their thought. It'd be like this thing that kind of like that they think about where this is just the narrator saying, this is how she looks. She looks as if this is the case. Right. So everything we need to know about these characters are given by their actions. It's as if we have to read them the way we would read a stranger, you know, like, or, mm-hmm. or even a friend that does not telling like in conversation, if the friend does a gesture, you have to kind of infer what they're thinking about with that gesture or how their tone of voice is um, suggesting how to interpret what they're saying, you know, right? it's very much a, uh, a kind of presentation that relies on those uh, pragmatic cues for how to take the meaning. And, and I think that's why there's a little, it could be confusing because if you're not paying close attention to those cues, you might not pick up on the, what's being communicated by them. Right. I'm trying to think now, I think like the girls in their summer dresses, you do get inside his head, but I can't remember if it's first person. I think it's third person, but it's like really close. Yeah. I thought it was third person too. And I feel like I would remember if it was this kind of thing where you get nothing of their interior thoughts, but I can't say for sure. I don't remember it well enough. Well, I, I recently reread it because I shared it on the group, our oh, Facebook group right. for Valentine's Day, because it's all about <laughs> like love and marriage and cheating with your eyes. And um, there's like a ending there where it talks about what he's thinking as his own wife walks past. So it is like in his head. That's right. Yeah. At least in points. Yeah. But for this story, it is like you said, like watching a friend or a stranger, you're also inferring things about them based on what they're doing. And that is another type of eavesdropping, right? It's people watching. And like, I don't know if we're supposed to spoil this, but we don't get to know what Seymour was thinking at all. But he right after the scene goes up to his hotel room and kills himself. Yeah. We don't get to see any sort of processing. So when he ends up back at the hotel room and like kills himself, I mean, we talk about when people kill themselves, like, you know, people don't usually see it coming and it's because people were acting a certain way beforehand. Well, this is like one of the starkest examples of a guy that we don't necessarily see struggling with the PTSD or mental illness that ultimately claims his life. We see him having what is, I guess, supposed to be a really sweet encounter with a little girl and he's having fun and he's on vacation and his wife's concerned about him, but he has a wife and they seem to be doing well enough to be able to go on a vacation, right? So it's just out of the blue. My guess about the revision that you mentioned before when the New Yorker said you need to rewrite this. Right. And maybe you mentioned this in our conversation the other day, but that the beach thing was all that he had originally and that he added the... Uh, yeah, I think I did mention that. Because that makes it more clear. What's going on? Yeah, there's the way that Muriel and her mother are talking about him. It's like, right. did he do the thing with the trees? No, I made him drive by the white line. But just those little things like, and maybe it was because I knew how it was ending. It's like suicidal thoughts. Like, I'm just going to crash this car into a tree or something, right? Right. And then other stuff about the incident with the the chairs, something like that. But they're just referring to all these like things that have happened in the past. And I think that is supposed to give us a sense that something's off 
off with him. So when we see this, like on, on the surface, kind of sweet interaction with the, well, sweet, whatever interaction with the, this little kid, we can understand it on a, another level as being off. Yeah. I do think that when you reread, especially the conversation with the mom and the daughter, you get the idea that he's not doing well. It's just, he doesn't ever tell us he's not doing well, you know, in this story. Yeah. We, we don't get to see him struggling necessarily. We're just hearing it from other third parties. And his wife is not even as concerned as the mother-in-law, you know, kind of when reading it, I was like dismissing the mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know? true. As one does, like, don't tell me what to think about my husband. She's really stressed and she's stressed, not necessarily for Seymour, but for her daughter who's in the car while he's doing the tree thing. So it felt like she was being overbearing or something. Yeah. You understand it, that the dynamics of it is like, she's looking out for her daughter while the daughter's looking out for her husband. And so they're kind of like cross purposes. So you do, you do find it like she would take his actions more seriously than Muriel would. Right. So it does take another read for all those reasons. I think you could also be paying really close attention to what the mother is kind of accusing Seymour of going through and still think to yourself, this is not necessarily a reliable account of his mental state. And then when you do see him with the little girl, he's having fun, he's being weird, but then he just goes up to the hotel and and then it's over. I'm not wondering about this as if it's believable or anything. I think this is probably a really accurate portrayal of, you know, how abrupt this kind of thing can be. But for the purposes of the story, I am just like that much more caught off guard because I don't know Seymour before the war. I don't know Seymour too well now. And um, yeah, he was struggling and then it was over. And uh, you don't even see anything, you know, processing the suicide. There's no follow up with the mother-in-law and the daughter. There's no Sybil scene on the beach. It's just over. When you reread it and you, um, there's little hints about like, uh, oh, we could set you up at another place. You could be by yourself. This is what the mother-in-law tells or her mother tells her on the phone. If you need to get away from him, we can wire you some money and you can go get a different hotel or something so you can get away from him. Yeah. So and on rereading it, those little, those kind of things in their conversation, you, I don't know, when I was rereading, they just hit differently because it's like, you know how it's going to end. You know that she's going to probably be woken up by the gunshot and they have to confront what just happened and then is going to be alone there all of a sudden. There's also the the encounter in the, the elevator when he's like yelling at that woman for looking at his feet. Yeah. Which is uh, really brief, but I think it's meant to be like a uh, kind of showing his state of mind literally before he walks in there and takes the gun out. Right. When you read a story like this and the presentation is as good as it is and it reads as quickly as it does and the characters all feel like so real and vivid and it's interesting and uh, the conversations seem accurate and like you are actually eavesdropping. Like the story is alive in so many ways that when you read it, you recognize it as being good in fiction. But if I was like one of these New Yorker editors, man, I think I'd be reeling with all the possibilities of where this story could have started or ended. And I don't know, maybe readers were just better back then or maybe they would have been more in touch with what was going on in society and they would have kind of gotten it. The way it's presented kind of requires you to interpret 
Yes. Because you don't get any, there's no character, there's no narrator who tells you Seymour was depressed or Seymour never recovered from the war or some kind of summarizing or um, context providing uh, summation Yeah. by which to interpret his actions. Right. You have to interpret them as you see them without necessarily knowing who he is or knowing how he would define himself or how his, you know, you hear his wife talk about him. You hear his mother-in-law talk yeah. about him. You hear the little girl talk about him. You hear the woman in the elevator talk about him, but you never, so you have to to make that judgment. It's kind of like the perfect way to present a story for a literary critic who wants to tell you what the meaning of it is, you know, like there's no passage in there that says, this is the meaning. You have to go in and figure it out. So it does set up the literary critic to do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it. <laughs> well, I mean, that, and it's not just a literary critic, but a reader. You know, if a reader reads this, it's the kind yes. of story that they're required to think about. You're required to say, okay, what, why, what happened? Which is how we react to, you know, that kind of like a suicide in, in, um, in our real lives. We do the same sure. thing. Why did that happen? Why did they make that choice? I guess I want to point out that we've all read in workshops, especially stories that make you go, what happened? <laughs> that's right. But this is one that you can tell is so expertly done, even if it's a little past you or over your head or you have to read it a couple times, it's still like so alive and real and well done with what's on the page that Salinger can get away with the fact that you have to think about it long after you've read it to figure out exactly what happened. This does not leave me feeling unsatisfied like at all. Yeah. I feel like I've read something and it's all there, but I just don't get it yet. And it's clear and it's vivid and it, it took me along on some kind of ride. And there's certainly a conclusion. We've definitely read stories that maybe try to be clever by leaving a lot unsaid. And this is a story that to your point on second and third read has it all there. I don't know. I think you just have to take all of that into account when we talk about like what's well done in terms of what's not explicit. That kind of leads to what my takeaway is going to be if we want to go there already. Come on. Yeah. So my takeaway is to think about this kind of psychic remove where you don't dive into a character's head. I've, I know that a lot of time my first drafts are written in this way. Right. And then I, I've, I worry that, that I'm losing something about the character or something about the story by not making certain things explicit. So yeah. I'll add a little, like a little line about their motivation or a little line about what they wanted or, you know, some internal thought that kind of hints at that or kind of helps shape that idea. And then the more internal, internal thoughts you, you do, you kind of triangulate so that you're guiding the reader to how to think about the actions that are being taken. You know, it could be as dumb as um, he was really thirsty. And so when he reaches across the table to grab the pitcher of water, you know, he's doing it because he's thirsty. Whereas if you hadn't said he's thirsty, he just reaches across the table to grab the pitcher of water and you have to guess, oh, he must be really thirsty or something, you know, something that's a dumb example, but that's the kind of thing that, you know, I, I would think about. And while I'm writing the story is like, do I need to tell the reader? that. There's so much advice that says, you know, trust your reader, trust your, your writing. Um, You don't have to tell them how to interpret that, but it's not always true. <laughs> Sometimes you do need to. Well, I like what you said about triangulate the reader though, because you do want to steer the reader. You don't just want to like give them enough clues that they have to pick them all up and then put a puzzle together. Like yeah. maybe to like expand on this ridiculous metaphor, like if you are dropping puzzle pieces throughout your story, like you don't want the finished puzzle to just be a solid color. You know, you want them to be able to see like where these pieces go and how they matter in context. So you don't just drop details and then say, 
no, see, I did mention that. There's something more yeah. deft about about saying I not only mentioned it, but I presented it in a way that you know signaled to you it was important. That I would have to like pull this story apart to give better examples. But like you said, when the mother-in-law is referring to what he's doing with the trees, you know, on first read you might not even know what they're referring to, but on second read you're like, oh my god, <laughs> he's talking about running his car off the road. Like it's all there, and if you're paying close attention in context it all makes sense too sometimes we'll get like clever backstory dropped in on a character that we know nothing about in a short story and it's frustrating because it doesn't feel relevant it feels like an info dump or something right so what you're talking about too is how expertly the story is presented we're not just eavesdropping we're eavesdropping on like a carefully crafted conversation yeah i mean that's like the salinger x factor you know we could all maybe (laughs) hope to write a story and tell ourselves that we're going to hint at things and triangulate a reader but like how you pull that off I think is like who you are as the writer um it's not always like something that I can teach you or point to you or describe to you how to do exactly but I have a feeling his New Yorker editors have a pretty good idea because they engineered this rewrite you know so they're probably on the money I think part of it you know in the workshop if you write a story if I were to write a story like this or even if I maybe if I took this story and nobody knew it and they turned it in and they'd be like I don't understand what's happening here. You have to have an assumption when you read a story like this, that it is a complete story, that it is well-crafted so that you can look back into it to find the answers. Whereas like when you turn it into a workshop, there's an assumption that the story is incomplete because it's at a workshop. So the feedback you'll get might not look back towards the story to find the answers. They'll just say, you need to provide answers. Right. (laughs) Then you start second guessing yourself because you're like, I thought I did put the answer in there, but they didn't see it. I wonder why they didn't see it. Another part of it, I think, is just people are, people read really fast and they don't always pay really close attention. And it's just, you know, nature of the world. People don't, don't devote close scrutiny to to a story. That's another thing that I I feel like when we read New Yorker stories, they all have some kind of element to them that makes you think to yourself like, yeah, the New Yorker would run that. That's right. I mean, like every publication has their thing, whether it's news that they would write, like the New Yorker would write think pieces. That's all they fucking write, you know, but they definitely have a flavor for their fiction too. You know, it's not just as if they're the only ones printing fiction. They're printing a certain type of fiction and this feels like that's part of it. And I feel like part of one of the elements of what they look for is something that needs a close read because people really do read fast. And um, almost all of the stuff that they print is not like necessarily operating on different levels. It's not as if on second read, you get a totally different read. It's just kind of more in depth than other stories. Like if you wrote a story at face value, you know, Seymour kills himself, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be interested in it. It has to be told in this almost roundabout way or it doesn't have to be obscure but it has to be like high-minded you know it's like the guy in the new yorker cover <laughs> with his monocle like you have to read this shit with the monocle on they want you to work a little harder for it and this is going to go into my takeaway but one of the other things i read about salinger with this story in particular was that he for years had wanted to be in the new yorker and he couldn't do it <laughs> he was submitting all this stuff and they didn't bite and when they finally bit at this one like i said he became like a darling but there was some arrangement it sounds like where the magazine had first right of refusal for some of his new works because they also loved his stuff. So my takeaway is if you really want to be printed somewhere, (laughs) you probably can do it. And you can probably do it if you figure out what it is that magazine is after. And 
And I feel as if we've read enough New Yorker stuff at this point where if there was going to be a story of mine that was anywhere near it, I could spot it in my own work. Or if you presented something to the workshop, I could read it and be like, you know who would like this? The New Yorker. (laughs) Once you feel confident about the flavor of some of these publications, and you have to really read them. It's not as simple as like going on Duotrope and like finding some obscure magazine you've never heard of and thinking to yourself like, oh, I fit the criteria according to this database. Like that's probably not good enough. You really do have to read these places. And I imagine Salinger was like hate reading every week, you know, for years. And it probably takes that dedication until you've cracked a code, at least for what those editors want. And you have to be as good as he is, you know, but I think if you are as good as he is, then that's the only way you'll be able to crack the code in the first place. I think there's tons of readers who read The New Yorker and think to themselves that they think they know what The New Yorker wants. But I guarantee you people that know exactly what they want are also the only people that can write it, you know? And uh, it's like a secret fucking society and we can never hope to be a part of it. I don't know. I don't know. It gave me some hope to know that he had really tried hard and succeeded with a particular magazine. That was the point of this podcast, right? Is to figure out how to write better. Yes. You know, we're over three years in and uh, neither of us have been published in The New Yorker. So we got a lot of more work to do. Well, uh, listen, it is for lack of trying. So yeah, I want to make that clear. I have made no no concerted or serious effort to improve my writing other than to talk about it. Every place you send something to, it says, if you want to know what we, what we like, you should read our magazine. I don't have time to do that for every place, right? I read like the best short stories, the best yeah. American short yeah. stories collections. And I read, right. I'll read here and there and for the podcast and, and other stuff just to get a sense of what, you know, our culture thinks of as great <laughs> stories that then they are pulling from and like, maybe they have like a slightly different focus, but I can't for myself. I can't write for any particular venue because number one, if I think I've cracked it and I send it to them and think this is the story for that place. And they say, no, it's not. Then what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Right. A story I can't sell anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. There is something to that as well. If that's our biggest problem, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's why I think if you can write a story that New Yorker ought to pick up, but maybe it doesn't, then you'll be able to sell it in a million other places. So, oh, there's a million other literary magazines that think they're the New Yorker. Absolutely. You know, just settle <laughs> for a imitation. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.